0: This is Runehammer. It's your old buddy Hanker Infernal here back once again. It's the lyrical master, P-Funk Damager, power toot the people. We're looking at episode 12 of RPG Talks. Can you believe that? And, you know, I think uh, episode 13, we might have to upgrade the name of this podcast. I think we're, I'm going to go with RPG Mainframe. It's got a lot more gravity to it, right? RPG Talks is kind of like, it's just quaffy. We're just talking. Let me get a little closer. Oh yeah, let me just snuggle right in here. Okay, welcome back to Runehammer. It's good to have you guys back, and we are going to do a special episode this time for episode 12, which is nothing but mailbag, baby. Nothing but mailbag. And just for this special occasion, let's do an expanded version of that mailbag song. Let me see if I can, uh, do we have the expanded version here in one of these things? Oh, here it is right here. Mailbag day, mailbag day. Let's go see what's in the mail today. Gonna talk about RPGs all day because it's mailbag day. Wow, that was the expanded version? it really, <laughs> really wasn't a lot more to that. Let's go see what's in the mail today. <laughs> all right, guys, for episode 12, we're going to do nothing but mailbags, So let's just dive right into it because... I've got uh, a baker's dozen of questions here that have come in via email, via Facebook, uh, and right here on Patreon. So just keep them coming, and uh, I'll answer as many as I possibly can just directly. You guys know me, or we'll throw them into the podcast because, hey man, I'm doing the talking. I'm filling these airwaves with smooth tones, and you're doing the listening, so just kick back, relax, keep your eyes on the road, and let's get into mailbag day here on Runehammer. All right. The first one is that I've received about four or five requests in the past two weeks concerning setting books for ICRPG, like, oh, dude, you should totally do a Harry Potter setting, or or dude, you should do post-apocalyptic, man, like ICRPG zombies, wouldn't that be cool? So do you have plans for this? Are you kind of working on this? These are kind of the questions that I get. So first of all, I just want to thank everybody for all their interest that uh, that ICRPG wants to be so expansive into different genres. That is so exciting to me. Um, you guys know me. I like to RPG outside of the normal D&D box, and just everything is is fun to try. But I have a little bit of an oddball answer here, which is like, that would be really cool, but... I really intended index card RPG as a DIY game. I really wanted it to be a game that was more about its core and less about its lists, if that makes sense. I found that a lot of the RPGs that I've gotten into over the years, I was insanely excited at the beginning when I was working from the core and building my own game. And then the more supplements and source books and things that came out and the more I collected them, enthusiastic the whole time, excited to be a collector the whole time, but the more I ensconced or surrounded myself with the so-called canon or the official line of what the material was, what the world settings were, what the monsters were, the more I found myself sort of spinning off the edge of the wheel of the enthusiasm. A great case uh, that illustrates this to me is Volo's Guide. So Volo's Guide to me was one of the first second wave books that I bought for fifth edition. And even though I was excited about it, When I got it and, you know, found some of the monsters, especially the red caps and uh, some others like sort of interesting, Um, I liked that kind of silly beholder culture section. In time, I wound up using absolutely nothing from Volos. And yet the original 5e monster manual, we were like working our way through almost every single monster in there as if it like mattered like they were boxes we need to check off it was a monster bucket list but the minute that bucket list became too big or too expansive or or too long for us to really realistically expect to check off all those monsters also bunches of monsters that my players and me had never heard of something was lost and, and I know that uh, publishers and bookmakers and RPG creators need to keep books coming for their core systems. I, I understand the, the business need for that. But as a hobbyist, for some reason, it reduces my enthusiasm to create my own game. And I feel silly with that, but there's my admission. So with Index Card RPG, I was really trying to dream up a system that was not only easy to hack apart and to create new content, but also one where it would be easy to create visual content. And that's why I was suggesting the index card method. I felt like everybody can doodle on an index card to get their table to feel more exciting and more visually grounded. So could we do like bunches of setting books for ICRPG? Heck yeah, it would be super fun. But even finishing Worlds, I felt that I was losing some of the true essence of index card RPG, which is that it's a DIY game. And the core is what really matters, and that's why we've had 1,500 players for almost a year playtesting, refining, and nitpicking the core of the game to reach 2nd edition. Is To me, that core is the essence of what's going to keep tables changing and being fun. And if I start, in my mind, sort of beating you over the head with more settings and more follow-up books and you feel like, well, I'm a fan, so I should get this, and then, oh, well, you know, Hankerin and already did the zombie setting... To me, that isn't the effect I wanted. I wanted the feeling of like, finally, here's a game where I can make my zombie setting. And so as much as I appreciate everyone's enthusiasm about setting books for index card, I have to say my general response is like, nope, I don't think I'm going to do that setting book. I think that's that's up to you guys. And I, I gladly welcome everyone to take a look at the Creative Commons license and just go wild doing your own setting books. And uh, you know, I'm always available for commissions. So if you want like that, sort of quote-unquote legit ICRPG art style, you know, we can work on that too. Um, but that's my short answer. Now, I do withhold a couple of caveats there. There are two settings that I am dying to do for my own purposes. One is Blood and Snow that you guys know about, my sort of prehistory setting. And the other one is some kind of Robotech tribute. I don't know what form it takes, but it's a tribute to how much I love and adore the original Robotech um, so I leave those doors open for now. Okay, so that's it for uh, setting books for Index Card RPG. Now, to segue quickly into the next question, the same thing comes up with, wouldn't it be great to have an ICRPG monster manual? And I know that um, Jason Scranton and several others, you know, kind of bang on this drum every few weeks of like, hey, Hankrin, wouldn't it be cool to do a monster manual for ICRPG? And... Hang on to your your pants here, guys, because I have the same response. I only put as many monsters into the core as I felt were critical to help you guys create your monsters. They're in the adventures, they're in the monster section, and I think most importantly, they're in the monster roller tables. And this isn't by accident. We easily could have put 50 or 60 monsters in the core. But to me, again, it loses this spirit. The fun of the game isn't just, I have a thing and I will read it from the book and we will play. The fun of the game, and more widely, the hobby, is the creation of those monsters on your own. And again, I invite everyone to supplement, expand, and inundate index card RPG with your own monsters. Um, I think the creation of monsters is one of the simplest and most fun pieces of being a dungeon master. And in a way, I feel if I overlist those, I'm going to be taking away some of that magic. Now, if you include every monster that is in the book, including those in the adventures, the number does get quite high, and it is comparable to a monster manual. So, sorry, but I'm going to have to say a similar answer on will there be an ICRPG monster manual? Is going to be nope, there's not. It's already in the core, and most importantly, the capability is there to create your own monsters. Now, there are some future projects coming which are going to have more monsters in them, but they, are, they live inside of rooms and adventures. It isn't just an explicit monster pile. So there's my answer to that one, and thanks everyone again for your enthusiasm. Okay, here's a nuts and boltsy one that came up, which is that we all know that a common action in almost all rpgs is move and act right do one thing and move one end distance and so a question came up in icrpg is it okay to act first and then move and i think not only is this true in icrpg absolutely yes i think it needs to be true in every single game you play and if a game is telling you that you can't drink a potion and then run 30 feet That game is bonkers. (laughs) So the easy answer on this one is absolutely. You have to be able to act and then move. That is an intuitive part of being a a creature on this planet or any planet is that you can move and act or act and move. Absolutely. And I love the new Overwatch rule suggestion that came up um, on the Google Plus group, which is sort of related to this, which is that I'm going into Overwatch classic skirmish game term, which means that if any enemy enters my ranged distance, you know, my ranged weapon distance, I trigger at that instant, no matter whose turn it is, and take a pot shot at him. And this is similar in a lot of ways, because it says, hey, I know in the book it says move and act, but there are other cases, right? And once again, I got to lean on the DIY nature of the game, and I believe of all games, which is that discuss the options the game design options with you with your players what fits what you guys like same thing with um, attacks of opportunity as my game is written I don't like them I don't have them I think they eat a lot of time and they also limit player movement in a way that can be unfun but do they fit your table are they cool do they need a fringe rule do they require a rule or a role maybe that that unleashes them maybe you fail a dex check and so an opportunity attack happens and so on and so forth. Rock on, all great ideas. It's all just a matter of what fits your pace, your player's appetite for detail. And you guys know all those answers by now. So the easy answer on this one is absolutely take an action and then move. Or even take an action and hold your move to be triggered by some other event. Or maybe your GM wants to to make a roll to do a held action. Or wants you to make a roll to drink a potion while you're sprinting. (laughs) Without dribbling it down your jerkin'. Okay, to keep in the nuts and bolts sort of section of the mailbag, we have an interesting one that came up, which was my group doesn't really have a healer, or if my group does have a healer and the healer goes down early in the fight, similar problem, do you just have a wipe on your hands and what do you do about it? You know, let's say your players don't have, you know, a bag of holding filled with potions, and so if you, A, have no healer, or B, lose him early in the fight, does this just mean a quote-unquote, and this is one of my least favorite phrases, a guaranteed wipe? Now, first of all, let's get it out in the open that wipes are never, ever, ever caused by the dungeon master or the GM. Ever. Every single time a party wipes out, it is because they have refused to flee or surrender or stop aggressing in some way, or get out, or hide, or whatever. Now, we all know this is true, and so I don't want to make a stand as a game designer trying to mitigate wipes, because I know that deep down, no matter how many dangers, how many impediments, how many disasters I'm hurling at players, there's always a way out. If They want a way out, and that is the rub, is players almost never want a way out. They always want to press through and win. We've all seen the character who has his other, his friends are all down, the bad guy is within one or two hits of dropping, and he is forced with this brutal decision, do I just try to kill him and hit him again, or do I help up one of my friends? This is a classic, classic moment where the wipe is so easily avoided, and yet More than 60% of the time, I would say, that one remaining player goes for the final attack to get the glory shot. (laughs) And you guys know what I'm talking about. Okay, so now with that premise to this answer out in the open, we can answer the deeper question, which is that if I have no healer or my healer goes down, am I just looking at a wipe and what can I do about it? Well, first of all, as a GM, nothing. There's nothing you can do about it. And if you are putting your mind in the place of, you know, these guys are going to wipe. I need to do something about it. That is, not, that is not for you to decide. Now, you could say, hey, guys, this is looking a little grim. You should consider options besides the frontal assault. Okay, that's fine. But doing something about it is the purview of players. You don't do things about anything. You just set the stage. Your stuff is relatively immutable. All you're doing is adjudicating. And so if the healer goes down, or there is no healer, you don't change, you don't nerf. But it is kind of good courtesy to warn them. Be like, You guys know you have no heals, right? I mean, just a, just a quick reminder. So if you get a little too bold and things start getting crazy, just keep that in mind. That's a good thing to do as a, as a kind GM, especially for newer players. Sometimes players don't fully see that there are options beyond full frontal assault. But here's my true answer to this question. The best groups don't have healers. Across the board, I've always thought that the healer puts an extra burden on the difficulty of challenges and emboldens characters in a way that actually detracts from the mortality of those characters. And mortality to me is the very root of fear, and fear is the root of fun. When there's no fear, especially like, let's say your healer is the highest level player in the group, There's going to be very little fear. And without that fear, as a GM, it's hard to give gravity and reality and detail and impact to your stuff, to your monsters, to your world threats, to your your story and your crisscrosses and your betrayals and so on and so forth. Because, man, we always got those uber heels, right? And so I would consider this brutal reversal of this question into a principle, which is that rather than be concerned, what happens with a healerless group? Put your focus on, ooh, healerless group. Yes, very good. This will be fun. And that mindset change, I think, can lead you to a lot of practices as a GM that are fair, that are even-handed, and that are scarier for players. And I don't know about you guys, but some of the funnest, most fun, I should say, encounters I've ever been in are ones that we fled from because they got so dangerous that we just... Forget this. Let's get out of here. That's really exciting in the game. More so than, oh well, it's okay. We got 20 heal pots. So I don't think that the fear of a wipe is a bad thing. It's very natural. But I would say, place your mind in the headset, the, the, the head space, that there is no healer. Even if there is, assume there's not. Assume there's not going to be any heals and tailor your GMing style to fit that level of danger. So, I hope that helps to answer the question, but also to spin it in a bit of a crazy way. All right, the next one is a little gnarly, guys. So, uh, you might want to buckle in and feel the cheese on this one. So, as more and more people, and welcome, by the way, find their way to YouTube, and especially over here to Patreon, I get a lot of questions as people catch up on the backlog of videos on YouTube, which I'm really proud of. I know that you guys uh, would like me to do more YouTube videos, um, and I will, but there is something very special and irreplaceable about the huge body of work that I did about two years ago or a year ago, and that's not easily repeatable, and I don't want it to be repeatable. I'm, I'm proud of what I did for then, and I stand by it, and I'm a little bit searching for my YouTube identity now. Times have changed. But as people catch up on those older videos, I think several of them stumble on some of the crazier ones, (laughs) and I'm not going to mention them because you you guys know which ones I'm talking about, as well as the never stop video, which, you know, shows me doing silly exercises and reveals the fact that I am an amputee and people get very curious about me personally. And so the question that came into the mailbag was really quick on Patreon on the podcast. I know this is weird, but could you kind of tell your life story? Now my policy on the mailbag is is one of uh, absolute integrity, and so just by principle, I'm sort of compelled to try to give an answer to this question because it came my way. That's my duty as a podcaster. Whew. Well, as some of you who listen to the Murder Hobo Show know, I started playing games uh, in the mid '80s and stumbled my way into games far outside of D and D at first. And right away, just because of my impatience with reading, became a hacker. We started hacking together TMNT, Gerps, RIFTS, and other games and making our own version. I also used to read a lot of Choose Your Own Adventures. And uh, I was a very academically driven kid. I was all about reading, all about school. Um, and in my mind, something about RPGs scratched several itches all at the same time. Drawing, game design, a little bit of math, a little bit of writing. And it involved books, which I was fascinated with books. I still am. (laughs) Um, And so that all came together and made a lot of sense for me as a kid. And I was lucky to have friends who were also interested and we started running with it. Uh, As I grew up and went to college, uh, in college I studied philosophy and anthropology, which really were in my mind a way to use college to basically talk about and think about early history of, of human beings. And in particular, like in my mind, the, the Hyborian age or the, the age of Conan. And whether the age of Conan is real or imaginary to me was irrelevant to its fascination. And so I wanted to think about early human lifestyles. I wanted to think about the development of human thought. I wanted to think about prehistory and how it fit into history. Uh, alternative versions of history and maybe that humanity and society were far older than we had imagined, which recent work um, awesomely enough has revealed to be true. We, we were off by almost 50,000 years. There's 50,000 years of unaccounted for history. That's a lot of time for cool things to happen. And so that's how I went through college and was getting into DD, playing a lot of second edition out of the rules cyclopedia, which is one of my favorite books ever. Um, you know, got married and kind of got a house and um, got a job in the video game industry. And that became sort of a big distraction, pulled me away a little bit from RPGs for a while. I was more into video games and Chrono Trigger and, uh, you know, Battle Arena Toshinden and AVP and doing all this stuff. Um, And then eventually sort of, uh, I'm not sure how to put it, but Felt satisfied with Colorado, which is where I grew up, and, and wanted to go try a new frontier. And uh, came out here to the Great Cascades up in the Northwest in Washington State. And up here, um, got a little more into DJing culture and uh, found another D&D group and found a new group of friends and kept expanding into the hobby, but really was still mostly working on video games and then continued with that. I mean, if you want to work on video games, this is a fantastic place for it. But D&D sort of never left my heart and we were always doing it. Um, then eventually time came around. Uh, I got married for the second time and kind of got encouraged to try writing a novel on NanoRimo and do this 50,000 words in 90 days challenge and came through. And that was my first novel. And writing that novel really revealed to me that I think I was ready to change and ready to try new things. And, um, you know, by then I had settled into my new life. I, I had, uh, you know, gotten a motorcycle accident is what caused my amputation. And that was all part of a big sort of turmoil in my life uh, before my second marriage. But now things were settling down and I was ready to, to go for it. I was ready to try to really be myself. And so I went into RPGs and decided to try to record this sort of, you know, mutant version of d that we had played for years. Then I found out about some friends on YouTube, got into YouTube, 5e came out. And you guys know most of the rest. Um, So exactly how I got where I am has, you know, had a relatively straight trajectory. It's just that I've, you know, like everyone out there had, you know, taken a few bumps over the years. And in recent months, you know, toward the end of last year, unfortunately, um, found myself single again. (laughs) And, you know, going through that kind of stuff. Uh, Even when it goes well, even when it's all very amicable and and everyone there's a lot of respect around the table, it's tough and it changes you. And uh, this experience, especially of like Gen Con last year and and everyone out there playing ICRPG and and so much community to interact with has changed me deeply and given me that uh, reminder about the fringe RPG personality that I was at the very beginning. You know, I've never been the mainstreamer RPG player. I've never been the, you know, knowing everything about D&D player. I've always dabbled in all these other games. And uh, at first I thought like the YouTube channel would just be all about D&D and all about fifth edition. But you know, these urges to play Robotech and to play post-apoc and to play, you know, horror and to play all these different, try different systems and try board games and try new groups and just keep going and writing and making art and all those urges have become part of my professional life now that I'm doing Runehammer full-time, thanks to you guys. And that's kind of where I stand now, is sort of asking, who am I now? What do I want to do this year? You know, what kind of lifestyle do I want? Do I want to get into cons more? Do, do I want to get more into being an artist rather than a writer and designer? Um, you know, all, these, all these options are open thanks to you guys' support. And for that, of course, I'm, I'm epic. Epic epically grateful. Epically, man, is that a terrible adverb or what? But anyways, I think you get the point. And so that's how I got here. Um, You know, I was raised by a Navy family. I was born out in Guam and those values have never left me. I believe in hard work and I believe in integrity and living by your word and all that good stuff. And as a young man, I don't think it meant quite as much, but as a grown man, especially, you know, running my own business and interacting with all you guys, I think integrity and living by your word is Uh, absolutely essential in life and, you know, treating other people with respect and always openly giving of your love and being generous and, you know, doing your best at everything and going all in and never thinking twice and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, I have been joked that I've been called the Tony Robbins of RPGs, and I am totally okay with that nickname. I've also been called the Bob Ross of RPGs. I don't think I'm worthy of that one, but I will accept the Tony Robbins of RPGs. I really do believe in positive affirmation. I believe in deep thinking and in meditation in self-introspection, in brutal honesty with one's feelings and one's emotional state, understanding oneself and hoping to understand others, listening when people talk and asking people questions that you really wanna hear the answers to. You know, always being the best person that you can be, whether man, woman, or otherwise, and just finding your role among others in a way that makes them feel better. And uh, that's where I've wound up, and that's where I hope to keep going. So I hope that answers that question. It feels silly to talk about. All right. Easier stuff. How about this one? Is there an Alfheim novel three coming and when? Yes, it is called Of Wolves and Wonders. And it takes place about uh, two to three centuries after the second novel, which was The Shield of Hanar. And it really sort of concludes that story set in a gigantic fashion. So I'm not going to say too much, but proofreading is almost, and editing is almost complete on the third novel, and it should be out this spring. Uh, On the is there kind of can we have a (laughs) question theme, there's also been questions about an art book. I would love to do an art book, but to be brutally frank, I don't think I have enough quality art to make an art book. And I know that may sound surprising, but I'll know when the time comes that I can say, wow, I have so much art and I like enough of it. I can make an actual like big burly art book. So we'll see when that time comes, but I can say it's probably three to five years away. Okay. Back to some nuts and bolts stuff. Here's a good one. If I'm not going to use XP in my group, what can I do? And and, uh, the follow-up to this question was kind of like, if I just offer like a milestone reward, like once per session, it feels kind of artificial or arbitrary. Like, Hey guys, session end. Anybody want to learn a new skill? (laughs) It just seems a little silly, right? Um, and, and I do think that's silly. It shouldn't be like that. It should be more like you finally, you know, reach the the top of this dungeon or this tower in the frozen north and there is a guru sitting on a little, you know, pillow of pure ice and you can ask him one secret and there you get your milestone reward. <laughs> but if I don't use XP, how can I level up my characters in a way that's fun? Well, the base answer that I always give is to put it sort of quote-unquote in-world. And in-world, it's also called discoverable progression but it means that you find or reach progression. So you're gonna to want to build it into your session planning. So maybe you have a teacher that they find at the end of a session. They, you could even use loot for it. So they find a certain piece of loot that's going to give them character progression. And it could be a heartstone plus N loot, right? Because heartstones, at least in ICRPG, are a big thing, you know? Or you can say it's a hit die. And so you find this potion of might. And instead of XP to get a new hit die, you drink the Potion of Might, roll another hit die. There you go. But it basically says there is no guaranteed progression. And to me, this has always been the most fun version. Now, there is something to be said for the D&D method of like, how much XP did we get this session? That's really fun. So I have nothing against that method. But the the premise of this question is, if I don't use XP, what can I do? And think in world. So always use an NPC to deliver a milestone or a reward or a progression. Or use an object, a potion, a a spell, an enchantment, an aura, you know, a dip in a pool, you know, like a fountain in Zelda do all kinds of things you find a crystal and when you touch the crystal you become more than you used to be you see into the future or whatever you see your heroic self there's a lot of ways to do it but the fundamental premise that you use is that progression lives in your world it's findable it's communicatable it's lootable it's even tradable in some cases like you know there's a here's a heartstone anyone in the party can take it who should get this that's a fun moment And so consider just putting your progression in your world. And then all you really need to do is answer about how often do I want him to find blah. Or, you know, like it's like when um, the characters meet the dungeon master in the old cartoon. They learn sort of some key fact, right? And the dungeon master, he never like appears in the middle of a battle. He kind of appears in the beginning to give him a little push. And he appears in the end to kind of troll them. And it's similar here, you have your little Yoda character. And whenever we bump into Yoda, we know, ooh, we're about to learn how to do a backflip, right? And so that makes it less arbitrary, and you get a symbol. And then when you're designing your sessions, you can ask yourself as the game master, ooh, where does Yoda fit into this? Like, where can I put my little Yoda guy? Oh, hey, right here, there's this portal, and he can pop out of the portal. Or like, he walks out from behind this tree, and then when he walks back behind the tree, they look behind the tree, and he's gone. You know, this kind of stuff, right? So you can always put progression into your world. It will have the same rhythm as XP. Um, and, and that's just how you do it. You just build it into your world. And to make it easier on yourself, come up with a Yoda mechanic, you know, a, a Yoda symbol, a thing that represents growth. You know, Kind of like those big things you read in Skyrim that teach you the new uh, you know, voice commands. Anytime a player in Skyrim sees one of these big things on this stone, you know you're about to level up. And that's a cool feeling. Okay, next one is an interesting one that I think has an unexpected answer. I hope the answer is unexpected because surprises are fun in life. I love to get a nice surprise. ICRPG, right. Is ICRPG good as a newcomer RPG system or is 5e better? This is kind of the question. Like, hey, I got some new players. They want to get into playing tabletop. Should I introduce them to ICRPG? Or should I introduce them to 5e, which is better for a new a newcomer? Now, ICRPG is vastly more simple and vastly faster to create characters and easier to learn. But hold on to your butts, because I actually think 5e is easier to bring people into the hobby than ICRPG wait a minute, dude, what are you talking about? 5e is way more complicated. The first time you sit down to make your first 5e character, you're like, oh no, uh, how do I, this, how many, what's a proficiency bonus? Why is that adding on to everything? I don't The reason that I say this is for two reasons. First of all, people equate Dungeons and Dragons with tabletop role playing. They think that is it. A newcomer, mind you, an uneducated, sort of unfielded player, just thinks, well, D&D is tabletop. And so it's comfortable for them. So when people ask, what are you doing over at Bob's house? Oh, we're playing D&D. That's very easy to say. ICRPG is a sort of a, an alternative band of RPGs. It's a garage band RPG, right? And it's much harder for a brand new player to come into the hobby playing a fringe RPG. Now, that's the first part of my answer. Hold on and stay with me for the second part, which is that I think index card RPG reveals much more of its value and its speed and its wonder once you have played 5th edition. 5th edition gives you that context for a slightly more complicated game and, for many people, I think gives you an appetite for a faster, simpler game that gets you rolling more dice. And that feeling of appreciation cannot come if the first game you ever play is index card RPG. And it's a good feeling. It's a big part of seeing why DIY RPGs are where it's at in this hobby. Because the big book, quote unquote, are, uh, RPGs, Pathfinder, D&D, can be a bit heavy for more casual players, which often new players can be a little more casual. Not always, but it's often how people will begin is in a casual way, right? And so I would advise to just say, hey, here's a player's handbook for 5E. We're going to play a session. And after that session or a few sessions, then you can suggest like, well, you know, and here's some little tweaks that I wanted to do. And here's this sort of other crazy book that's got all this, you know, crummy Sharpie art in it. they also have all that context of lore and depth that comes with 5e and D. they get that easy statement to friends and loved ones of what are they up to these days and they say oh we're playing D." if they're playing index card great i still want to sell books and stuff right I, I i i want icrpg to spread to the world but i've got to admit people are more comfortable just saying hey i want to get into this okay let's play D." that's very understandable to them and so I don't mean to counter my own marketing with the answer to this question, but it, this is my honest response. So I, I hope that helps with, uh, with your answer of, of what to do as you face the wonder of welcoming new people to the hobby, which is always such a blast. Okay, next one. This is really down to the nuts and bolts level, and I've just decided to throw it in a podcast. Uh, so many commissions have been happening lately. It's become a daily part of my life and I'm really thankful for it. I love doing commissioned work, both for individuals who just want characters for their game. You know, they want portraits and sometimes full color, sometimes black and white, you know, all kinds of different uh, permutations, as well as bookmakers like Eric Bloat or Dice on Ice. These guys who are making full-on supplement books or even core books in the case of um, uh, Demi Gorgons. And they commission me for large bodies of work. Now, whether it's the one or the other, everybody pays the same. So here it is. I charge 40 bucks an hour for my work. It's that simple. Then what we do to tune to your budget is we change the style that I do, we change how much of it we're going to do, and we, we get it to fit. But that's what I charge, and I don't plan on raising or lowering that rate anytime soon. So bang, there it is. So for everyone who's been curious about having me do your portraits of your groups or your your art for your ICRPG book or anything like that. It's that simple. Now, how much do things cost? That gets more scalable. Um, so, I totally welcome any and all commissions. They take time sometimes to work through others to get to them all, but I really love doing it. It is a blast. I can't wait to finish Harbinger. I'm going to do some other work for Tabletop Terrors that's about to be announced. Um, And I love doing work for individuals as well. It's really fun. So bang, there you go. There's there's an FAQ type answer right there. All right, sticking with the uh, ICRPG nuts and bolts, we have a question of like, how do I run help when two or more players are working on the same task? How do I run that? Well, there's a simple answer, which is a little bit in the book, but I think applies to all games. If more than one player is working on the same task in a believable fashion, then the, the roles for it should be easy. Now, I know easy is an ICRPG term, but let's say you're playing you know, D&D, then you know, take two or three off of the, the target role, off the DC, right? if you're helping each other. So you're both pushing a door open. Well, it's gonna be easier. That's the first most simple version. Even if it's five people or two people, all it can do is get one notch easier. Now, if you're talking about effort-oriented things, you do it just like multiple people pounding on a skeleton with swords. So if the two of us are both pushing on this door, we both get to roll some effort on it, just how we would both roll damage on the skeleton. So things vastly accelerate in index card RPG when you talk about helping each other, and this is by design. I wanted a game that would encourage help and pooling of effort more than just damaging which is the main area of teamwork in so many games so that's my simple answer now you have multiple game systems to think about but I think your answer is always going to be the same if one or more if two or more characters are working on the same task make the roles easy or easier if that fits your terminology and then let them pitch in somehow together you know and don't I'm not a huge fan of doing advantage. I like lowering DCs more than advantage. Advantage, the fun of that wore off on me about a year ago. Rolling 2D20, getting a one-on-one and a 20 on the other is an emotionally zero-sum moment, and I do not like that on a D20 roll. And so I think advantage and disadvantage lead to a lot of those moments, and I don't like those moments. So I'd rather raise and lower the DC like back in the old 3.5 days. All right, next we have, this is a bit of a nebulous one, but, uh, you know, it comes in two or three times and I just, I feel compelled as I keep saying to answer, which is that, by the way, thank you everyone who's read my novels and read all my written work. I really appreciate it. But uh, these readers ask, you know, hey, I'm working on my supplement and, you know, maybe I get to read it and look it over, give them some comments, or maybe it's just discussed abstractly, but hey, I'm working on my supplement. And, you know, what tips do you have for improving my writing quality? First of all, I don't know if I'm qualified to give such tips, but I'm going to do my best. The primary rule, I think, of quality writing is brevity. And this means that if you write 10 lines of text, you probably need one. And to apply this rule to yourself again and again and again as a writer is never going to do you wrong. It's always going to lead you to better and better places. Just take as an assumption that 10% of what you write is good. And the other 90% you're putting there because you're discovering the idea, you're explaining it to yourself, you're being flowery with your language, or you're trying to simulate ancient language, which is a very common error that I give into quite a bit. So that's my first one. Be brief. And if you have concepts that aren't very strong when they're discussed in brief, they probably aren't very strong. And so maybe those concepts, you were just trying to fill space and maybe you can let them go, or maybe they need to be expanded and then boiled back down. But either way, the 10 to 1 principle forces you as a writer to take a hard look at everything you've done and bring it down and down to the essence and then continue and repeat and repeat and repeat. It isn't a restart and it shouldn't be discouraging. It is the simple art of writing well is writing more than you use. It's just like in movies, you know? How much of a movie do we never see because eh, it didn't really fit the story and so forth, but we we filmed it for coverage. Same thing with a writer. You're going to write more than the reader is going to read and you're going to get in this habit, not of feeling bad about the 10 to 1 principle, but, but reveling in it. Secondly, always consider the cold reader, and I got to send some props out to my man Alvarez for, for this one. He is my reader. He's my confidant. He's my creative sounding board. He's my partner in crime, and I respect his intelligence, but also his taste, and also I respond positively to his enthusiasm in such a way that I can use him as my cold reader. A cold reader will see what's missing and what's overly present in your writing in ways that you never, ever will because you have all the assumed knowledge. A cold reader knows nothing. They just come in, they see the words for what they are, and the words are all they have to speak for themselves. So find yourself a cold reader. And if you can't do that, then get better at the art of being your own cold reader, of walking away from your writing for a day or two, Coming back, clear head, clear mind, reading your own writing and saying, ah, where is this sort of rhythm broken? Or where does it feel stilted? Or, you know, why do I keep pausing like this? Why are my sentences so stinking long? Like, can I can I pare these down a little bit? These these kinds of things. Or a great one that um, that my confidant has led me to is I had this habit of saying this to start a sentence. And as a cold reader, you're like, this what? Now, it refers to something I just mentioned moments earlier, but to mention it again is something that the cold reader loves, even though you as the writer, of course, I know what this refers to. It's, you know, the one eyed would hunchback with the wheelbarrow, of course, duh, but instead you say the hunchback, right? And, and this gives you that reminder of what we're talking about that a cold reader loves because they're always in the moment. So there you go. Consider the cold reader. My third one is a little more nebulous but this is the last one I'll mention which is learn to be brutally terribly honest with yourself about what's innovative, what's unique and what's fun and interesting about what you're writing. And this can be very challenging, but this this is the art of self-critique. This is looking at 10 pages of work that you've done and sincerely asking yourself what here really is different from the next 10 pages I may read from someone else. And really, differentness isn't necessarily the key. It's what, what is capturing the voice I want to deliver? What, what is me? What is unique to me? What is authentic? What is honest here? And I think you're going to find yourself circling back on the 10 to 1 rule. For every 10 pages, you're going to find one page that really feels like, man, this is where I nailed it. You know, oh yeah, the, the elves are, are perishing from some terrible virus and soon they're going to be gone. Besides that fact, my, my world is kind of like other fantasy worlds. Okay, fine. You don't have to be the most inventive writer of all time, but what you do need is that honesty with yourself. How many real ideas are you working with here? And then as a follow-up to that skill of self critique, you latch onto those buggers, man. The elves perishing from the earth have caused all these different events and here's what they are. And if players want to be elves, they're going to have to deal with this sickness that they have and this stigma and like, you know, people don't want them in their towns. And, oh, hey, whoa, this kind of sounds like the Black Plague. And, oh, maybe I should run with this elfish Black Plague theme. And like, whoa, and it starts expanding and now you're going somewhere innovative. But then all that stuff you said about the rest of your world, which is well written, but is honestly kind of like other worlds, it begins to fall away. You find yourself applying the 10-to-1 rule, and it winds up on the cutting room floor, and that's totally okay. Because any amount of work to reach a new or innovative idea is worth it as a writer. It's a very difficult discipline and takes years and years, in my opinion, at least at my ability level, to even begin to get good at it. So there's a lot of patience. The cutting room floor is littered with the dead, and you keep a cheerful attitude about it. <laughs> so I hope that answers some of the question about um, you know, tips for writers and improving writing. Okay. Next, we got, uh, there's a couple more left. Next, we've got boss making. You know, this has come up a few times, and we've talked about it in a few videos. And uh, I think even in a podcast, we talked about, you know, making super villains and stuff. You know, what do you do to make a great boss? Well, as a sort of cheesy answer, I would say, you know, consider using the, um, the monster rollers, in the ICRPG core book, which, you know, give you randomly generated ways to augment monsters in, in interesting and different and powerful ways and give them three or four augments. Okay. So that's a starter. And that list of augments really speaks for itself. It's more than one action per turn. It's using magic. It's using regeneration, disrupting movement, denying terrain, all this kind of stuff. But on a more esoteric level, the art of making boss monsters is the art of breaking your own rules, of defying expectations, of creating danger that seems totally unfair and unsurmountable, but that always has a keyhole. I think the keyhole to a boss is fascinating, and it goes all the way back to Mega Man, it goes all the way back to Zelda. It's this idea that, oh yeah, once you get the pattern, it's super easy. You just jump over the lizard and then you get in the bubble, and then while you're in the bubble, you shoot the little red dot, right? But figuring that out takes you several deaths or several attempts. And I think this is something that can be missing in some tabletop RPGs. Is that even the biggest monsters simply become your hit point sponge versus my sword hose. (laughs) Sword hose. (laughs) The revenge. So you don't want your bosses to turn into that. Tank and spank is another term that's often used for that. You want them to be unbeatable until the keyhole is figured out, until this pattern or this weakness is figured out. And then suddenly the, the tide changes and the excitement is there. Once again, leading to this principle, like in my last podcast about escalation, which is the fun of escalation is not an even line, but a wavy line. And it's the same thing with a boss battle. You don't want this steady grind down of their hit points and then bang, they're dead. I did it. Woo. Good job us. What you want is terrible danger. We almost died. Then we had him on his knees, and then he blew out this massive force, this wall that blew us all back, and we almost all died. And then there was no hope, and we fled, but he chased us, and then we finally realized we had that iron cross that the old lady gave us in our pocket, and we held it up in the air, and he was you know, reduced to one hit point, and we walked up and hit him with a rock. Right? That's a wavy line boss battle and that's what you want to achieve. Now, there's a million ways to achieve that wavy line, but as long as you have that wavy line as your ideal, it's going to give you ideas of how to press that envelope and how to get that keyhole to work. What could the keyholes be? And if you're having trouble coming up with a keyhole, you can always look to some of the classic monster lore to find it, right? So, you know... There's a material or a substance that the monster is terribly allergic to, afraid of, or weakened by. The old kryptonite theory. Another one is the missing scale on smog, right? There's one spot on this thing's body, which is a terrible weakness. It's literally a keyhole in its armor. The other one is the phylactery concept, which is that a lich, you know, is given unnatural life by this sort of object, which can be, you know, a glass orb or it can be a gem or something. But that's really what you want to destroy, not the lich. He's almost invincible and so on and so forth. So this kind of keyholing of your bosses is what's going to give you some of the crazy. And just don't be shy. If you're going to call it a boss, make it a bawas. if you know I'm (laughs) me. really lowered the intellectual level of things. <laughs> okay. We got one more question for the Ultimate Edition Mailbag uh, podcast for what will from here to for be known as the RPG mainframe here on Runehammer. Thanks everybody for tuning in. The final question that came in via the mailbag that I want to talk about is Sort of, what is your daily existence like? What is a day in the life of Runehammer? You know what what is it like? I think there's a lot of curiosity around what happens when you go full time into this hobby, as, as a profession. You know, whoa, what what does it become? You know, are you tangling you know your fun and your business too much? Like, is it? I get a lot of questions along these lines. And I have to say, you know, I've I've talked about it a little bit in the past, but it's probably not that different from what a lot of you guys do. I wake up early, I go to the gym, I come home, I work till lunch. I don't muck about. <laughs> now, I probably finish working like around three and, you know, go have a beer and then come home and work a little bit in the early evening. And by working, I mean, you know, doing drawing commissions, doing paintings, as well as, you know, working on new little game variants that I'm doing, or working on edits for second edition uh, in recent cases, or working on things I haven't announced yet. But it's still work. It's still sitting down and not being distracted. No TV, just listening to music and and being focused. You know, it's a lot like a job. And some days you don't want to do it. Some days you do. But I wouldn't say that it detracts at all from my love of the hobby. If if anything, it just makes me want to play more. It makes me miss the days that we were playing a little bit more. But I think there's a bit of um, an illusion around, you know, it's like making it, Um, you know, and ICRPG has been successful. But I mean, you guys know I I need to keep working at this every single day. There is no sort of frontier of comfort waiting for me. You know, I mean, I'm really happy that there's been some success, but I'm just like a lot of you guys. I need to get up every day and I need to come at it or it's not going to be easy to pay bills. I mean, it's that simple. I think the, the curiosity around this is, is, is fun and interesting to me because I also dreamed about it for so long. I mean, for 30 years, you know, like if I could do things on my own terms, well, I would do this, I would do that, and I'd do the other thing. Well, I can say that a lot of those things I dreamed about doing when I was finally on my own terms are not what I wound up doing. I, it, it wound up being in some ways simpler, more disciplined, more focused than I expected and on a lot less like, oh, it's going to be like a vacation. <laughs> you know, like vacation all the time because I work for myself, right? <laughs> it's still a tough job and there's still a lot of work to do, but it's just I love the work. So, you know, if you're really good at being self-motivated, making your own projects and getting after things and everything, you could be cut out for it too. And then you just reach that challenge of like, you know, do you have that service-minded you know, work ethic, where you really do want to do good customer service. And I know that's a cheesy, cheesy word, but it's an instinct that I do think a lot of people have. I think it's what makes the world in a lot of ways such a great place is there's a lot of people with great sense of hospitality and people with a good work ethic, people who openly love each other, who love to meet new people and who want to do a good job and see that others are having fun. And I think that's a very common instinct. And tapping into that instinct to me is the essence of going full-time with, with almost any business concept. is not, I want a bunch of money and I want to retire and have fun all the time. I That's not, no. It's more like, I, I really want to do this well and I want to make sure everybody's having fun with it. That, that to me drives me every day. And uh, I think a lot of good small businesses are driven by that mindset. So if it is something that you're dreaming of and setting your sights on and hoping to do, I, I think that's a good route to work from. You know, it's just the love of your fellow man and and, and helping others to have fun and then leaning back in your chair and feeling that satisfaction of a hard day's work. I, I think as long as those are things you enjoy, you could make a great business person. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows if any of these answers were worth recording. But there it is. We've got a full hour of a mailbag day, mailbag day. Let's go see what's in the mail today. are talking mailbag day, oh, mailbag day. Mango papaya today. ho! I don't know what mangoes and papayas ever had to do with Runehammer, but it has found its way into things. Everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. This is your old buddy, Hankren Furnell. Brandish Gilhelm here from Runehammer. And uh, man, get out there. Roll some dice this week. And may they be high. Keep it real. Don't steal. You're always going to get a deal. Strength, honor, and beer. Okay, thanks everybody for tuning in. I will catch you next time right here. And thank you, patrons, for all your support. means the world. All right. Talk to you soon. I'm um, out.